0: And that, that iterative cycle is critical to every engineering project I've, I've ever been a part of, of continually, essentially making mistakes and doing your best to learn as much as you can from them uh, to take into the next problem solving exercise and then balancing between, I've got a thing I need to optimize, I've got some constraints that are holding me back. What's the best that I can do given this setup based on what I know now and then are my options. I change a big variable, or I go and investigate something totally new that I can bring to the table.
1: You're listening to Curious Minds, a podcast aimed at the next generation of aspiring young entrepreneurs, innovators, and change makers. We release new episodes every month discussing career insights,
2: entrepreneurship, and the most exciting emerging technologies today. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with none other than Constantine Sotsos. Constantine is currently a senior staff software engineer and manager at Google, where he's currently leading and managing computer vision and sensor fusion research to product teams within the AR space.
1: Prior to joining Google, he obtained his undergraduate degree from University of Toronto and a PhD in computer science at UCLA. He was awarded the 2015 ICRA Best Paper Award for thesis work on the observability of vision-aided inertial navigation.
2: All right. Now, without further ado, let's get into it. Constantine, thank you again so much for being here. We're super excited to have you on the Curious Minds podcast. Now, as for our first question, can you tell us a bit about the space that you're working in right now and how you got to be where you are?
0: So, uh, I work in augmented and virtual reality at Google. Uh, I've been doing that for about seven years, and so this is in the in the team at Google that's that's responsible for. Uh, AR Core, which is uh, an augmented reality developer kit for uh, Android and, and iOS phones. Uh, uh, previously worked on Daydream, which is uh, one of the, the major VR platforms that was out uh, a few years ago. How did I get here? Well, uh, not at all by wanting to work in augmented and virtual reality. Uh, this all, all started for me from an interest in space exploration and spacecraft. Uh, I uh, uh, I remember vividly uh, I think I was in grade nine or ten my father sat me down and said son you know you need to decide what you want to do with your future and you know my favorite thing at the time was watching Star Trek and I said hey I want to invent warp drive uh, he told me that's probably not gonna gonna be doable uh, but that sounds like aerospace engineering uh so you know let's let's see what you can do for aerospace engineering and that that set me on on the path towards uh, okay great i'm gonna I'm gonna go design rockets uh, and, and that's what I want to do uh, went uh, to, to towards undergrad to try and work in aerospace engineering found that uh, I wasn't good enough for that <laughs> uh, fluid mechanics was was really hard there was some really challenging math there uh, ended up switching more towards uh, electrical and computer engineering and and got uh, interested in some robotics work uh, working with some uh, some researchers at the University of Toronto uh, and they were doing how the robot sees what's going on around it, uh, how it plans its, its actions and, and navigates around the world. Uh, and I immediately fell in love with this kind of work. Uh, and uh, uh, I realized basically in an instant, hey, my, my undergraduate is not gonna give me enough skills to become an expert in this thing. Uh, that's just too far for an undergrad to cover, uh, but I wanted to do it. And so I finished my undergrad and took as many courses as I could in this robotics area went and did a PhD in, in computer science focusing on these aspects of how do robots see and understand their environment? How do they uh, get enough information about it in order to interact with it? And this is particularly around how do they navigate through complicated 3D spaces? And so this would be 3D spaces where you have lots of people moving around and lots of stuff that is you know complicated shapes and the normal kinds of scenes that you'd see in, in uh, everyday life. Uh, and uh, towards the end of, of my PhD work, uh, Google announced this product that they were developing called Project Tango. Uh, and it was this system where they were building custom smartphones uh, that had a whole bunch of extra technology built into them so that they were special uh, specialized for doing augmented reality. Uh, and this really was my research area condensed into a Google product. So this group at Google was looking to make basically the research that I'd been doing accessible to as many people as possible through a consumer smartphone. And I said, okay, great, I got to go help them make this happen. And that's turned then into a wonderful seven years uh, continuing to work in this area, kind of starting from being a junior engineer on the team to leading multiple teams working on various R&D uh, threads within this space, Uh, uh, looking at mixed reality applications Uh, and that's that's just been a ton of fun.
2: Lots of exciting stuff for sure and I think I'm sort of seeing this parallel with a bunch of other podcast guests where it's this very non-linear career path which is really interesting to see. Now let's dive a little bit deeper into your research. What can you tell us about the structure of your standard autonomous vehicle from that perspective?
0: Yeah. So the, a bunch of the work that I had started during uh, my, the early parts of my PhD and through that were coming from robotics uh, and and wanting to work in autonomous vehicles. I actually uh, uh, had almost done uh, a startup in autonomous vehicles. I was I was really considering it for, for a while towards the end of it. An autonomous vehicle is, is basically a robot. Uh, it's a robot with a particular task, and that's transporting people from point A to point B. Uh, and so, you know, all right, let's let's work the problem. You got to transport people. So you need locomotion. You need a way of, of having this box that stores people uh, uh, move around. So it needs needs uh, wheels, brakes, motors, uh, a way to control those and give them direction for, for speed and, uh, uh, and, uh, and direction to go. Uh, if you want to get from point A to point B, okay, you need some way of knowing where A and where B is, slap a GPS on it and... Uh, uh, you've got an autonomous vehicle, uh, except that it can go only, only go in a straight line. And then you have to figure out how do you make it work in the normal world of other cars and people and roads and traffic signs. Uh, and that's where things get complicated. And that's where you know there's there's a lot of bare minimum stuff of okay we don't have to, we have to not hit people uh, we have to understand uh, what traffic signs uh, are there and what they mean uh, we need to be able to predict other drivers uh, and there you have a whole layer of decisions that you can make in constructing your autonomous vehicle about how do we try and give it these capabilities uh, you as a human when you sit in your car look around the world with a stereo camera your two eyes. You have some auditory sensors your ears and that whole sensor package can move around on your neck um in all the degrees of freedom that your neck has so you could just put that in your autonomous vehicle and say okay great we've got a little robot head that sits in the driver's seat it's got two cameras and you know some microphones and that's how we're going to design our autonomous vehicle um it would be very very hard to make one that is as reliable as it needs to be to work on the roads with just that sensor package. Uh, And so that's where it gets into what are your constraints in designing it? And every engineering problem comes down to what are the constraints you have to fit within? What are you trying to optimize uh, within those constraints? So if you wanna maximize the safety of your autonomous vehicle, that sensor package is not gonna be the one to go for. If you want to minimize the cost of your autonomous vehicle, Maybe you could get it decently good enough with that sensor package, but that all depends on what is good enough. How safe does it need to be? Uh, and of course, we want them to be as safe as possible. Uh, and but you know, if if you need the absolute minimum, okay, maybe put a maybe put one camera or two cameras on your vehicle and uh, attach them in some place where they won't fall off, like uh, you know the front. Uh, uh, part behind the rear view mirror where a lot of camera systems in cars end up getting placed. And then you can have an autonomous vehicle, but it will not do maybe not do a great job. But if you want to actually push the overall safety of, of these devices, that's where you start getting into the, the kinds of autonomous vehicles that you might be more used to seeing from from companies that are out there where you've got a lot of sensors all over the place. And these these companies send out fleets of cars to pre map this, the, uh, the cities that they're operating in, uh, so that they have a stored map of 3D points where all of the content is labeled. So imagine you know, a, a full 3D model of your standard city street. Every street light gets a label saying, hey, this is a street light, this is what it means. Uh, every obstacle that's commonly there gets a label. And that's a base map that the autonomous vehicle can use, all in the name of, if cost is no object, how do we push safety as high as possible? Because uh, in terms of kind of today's world of making autonomous vehicles a reality, one of the biggest hurdles is how do you get everyone to be comfortable with them? How do you get whatever regulation boards to be comfortable with them? And one big answer to that is convince everyone that they are safe enough to trust. Uh, And and that's where kind of one, one of the popular paths in autonomous vehicle work is today of let's try and throw every piece of computing machinery we can at this, every possible sensor, laser scanners, radars, multiple cameras, GPS, uh, inertial measurement units, uh, all of these being able to figure out where the car is relative to a big base map that you built, uh, just so that we can drive safety as high as possible uh, so that everyone can can start to use these more reliably.
1: Yeah, definitely. Safety is a huge concern for consumers and requires a lot of technicality on like the development side. And now obviously, like with product development, there are also a lot of challenges you mentioned. So could you kind of walk us through how you tackle these issues or problems you face? Is there like a specific strategy or framework that you use?
0: That's a great question. It, Like I said, it comes often down to defining the constraints that you have to work within and then what do you want to optimize? So... Uh, let's say we have a, a, you know, a simpler example of a basic autonomous vehicle where, you know, we've got, we just want to design the sensor packages for it. Uh, We've already got the wheels and motors and and all of those. It's just, what are the sensors we put on it? And you might be trying to design this from a product perspective of thinking, okay, we want a car that people in this income bracket are going to be able to afford. Let's say you're buying, you know, you're, your own autonomous vehicle or it's the sensor packages that let you do adaptive cruise control or something just to simplify the case a little bit more we want a car that people in this particular income bracket can can purchase and use and uh, then that defines how much the car is going to cost how much you're going to be able to price the car tells you something about how much all of the materials that go into building the car are going to cost that's often in industry called a bill of materials or bomb cost Uh, And that's basically your budget for all of the sensors and computing hardware that you want to put onto the vehicle. Uh, And then you get to start playing the game of, okay, this is the box that we have to fit in in terms of cost. What are our options in this in order to push some other metrics, say the safety and reliability, up as high as possible? And so then you might say, let's start with, say, the cameras. Uh, All right, we need cameras that uh, are going to have to work you know, well at nighttime, take good images. They're gonna have to be able to do pretty well in sunlight. Uh, they're gonna have to deal, uh, give good images when you're moving really quickly and taking sharp corners. so They can't have too much motion blur. Uh, this is a process of collecting requirements, gathering requirements about all of the, all of the things that our engineering product needs to actually achieve. And then that's gonna tell us what the box is that we need to fit our selection of components into. A particular camera may have really poor low-light performance. Okay, that one's out. Uh, another camera may take, you know, very poor images in direct sunlight. All right, that one's out. Uh, and so you use the requirements as your next layer of filtering for how you make design decisions about the hardware components that are there. Great, we've come, come down to the, the cameras that roughly meet our requirements that don't blow our entire budget. And then you see, okay, I need computing hardware for this. Uh, and you design the best computer that you can that takes up another chunk of your budget, then uh, you say, okay, let's try, and, let's try and make this thing. You start building a prototype. You uh, usually will you know, grab some off-the-shelf stuff, hack together a prototype, get some off-the-shelf uh, software, try it out and see if it actually serves your purpose or not. Uh, you, you learn uh, a lot from that first prototype. And then you decide, okay, well, these pieces worked. These pieces didn't. Uh, with just two cameras, uh, safety was nowhere near where we needed it to be because the software had all of these limitations. How do we solve that? All right, one option is we get different sensing hardware. Maybe we put a laser scanner on there or or a radar, and that will give us, I don't know, 50% more reliability. Is that enough? Is that not enough? Or another option is we get a whole bunch better software that might be able to do this. Maybe that can get us 40% reliability, and that It's much cheaper because that we don't need to put extra hardware on this thing and increase the cost, but there's a trade-off in terms of of safety there potentially, or maybe the software is better, Uh, or you could do both. And so then you start playing this game of what can I learn? What can I try next to see if I do better with respect to my requirements? How does that impact all of my constraints? And then you iterate, you keep cycling through the process of building a prototype, having it mature, testing it out in a lot of different ways making a new decision next time, seeing how that reacts. Uh, and then often in uh, these cases, you'll go through a whole ton of different prototypes before you land on something that meets your constraints, hits the requirements that you need, works really well in terms of, of the main goals that you want, say safety in, in an autonomous vehicle case, and is ready for kind of full maturation into, into a product. And that, that iterative cycle is... Critical to every engineering project I've I've ever been a part of of continually essentially making mistakes uh, and and doing your best to learn as much as you can from them uh, to take into the next problem solving exercise and then balancing between I've got a thing I need to optimize I've got some constraints that are holding that are holding me back What's the best that I can do given this setup based on what I know now and then are my options I change a big variable or I go and investigate something totally new that I can bring to the table.
2: Really quickly, I love the fact that you touched on these mindsets and decision-making frameworks. And I think that the most innovative companies, like, as I'm sure you know, Google X, for example, um, they sort of embrace this whole, um, embrace failure approach pretty much. So it's not seeing failure as something to to sort of, um, you know, shy away from, but something to actually, you know, dig deeper into and sort of like find the root cause of what exactly was the failure. I, I see that in my mind as like a very Google approach to doing things. Um, and it's probably why the company has gotten so far in all these different areas. Um, very exciting stuff for sure.
0: So, just to jump in on that, it's, yeah, it's of course. You know, not even not even a, a Google thing. It's, I see it as completely foundational to, to engineering. Uh, the, the whole history of space flight is, is written in making making mistakes and learning from them. Uh, every safety manual on the planet is written by making mistakes and learning how we avoid them. You know, every, everyone who's had a complicated kind of career path would also say that making, making mistakes is how they ended up where they are, uh, and learning from those is, is the way to do it. And so, yeah, the, I, I, don't, I don't know how to approach engineering problems without the mindset of failure is not a thing to fault for. It's a thing to learn from.
2: Definitely, definitely. And I think that's why engineering is such a complex field too. All right. So now that we are talking about exciting things, I'm sure something that is on the minds of a lot of people listening right now is this whole AI craze um, and AI integrations and all these other emerging technology industries. So quick question, if you were to mush AI and AR and VR together and then look 10 years into the future, what do you think are some really cool things that the two technologies could accomplish together?
0: That is a, a, a very, very hot topic question and a really exciting one. Uh, kind of, if you look out today at uh, a lot of things that, that show up on social media, there's lo- lots of people doing experiments where uh, they're using generative AI, so systems that can basically imagine whatever you want in terms of imagery or video, you know, fantastical landscapes, uh, uh, you know, taking photos and turning them into things done, done by someone of a particular artistic style uh, and using those to generate 3D worlds that you can look around and explore. Uh, that is something that once we are able to bring that to live ARVR usage, uh, I think we'll open a lot of really exciting doors in creative spaces uh, and, and hopefully in a lot of others as well. One of my fondest memories of being someone who is is tied to ARVR is uh, uh, one time we uh, got my grandmother to try a VR headset on and took her in Google Maps to her her home village in in the mountains of Greece, which she hadn't seen in many many decades, and she was just floored by the fact that she could walk around the village where she grew up and see all, all of her you know familiar mountains and sites there. And that felt amazing as someone who is working in the space to be able to bring that experience to, to my grandmother. That's, that's the kind of thing that I hope we can figure out how to do. Uh, once we can create may, maybe it's creating environments that you can explore. Maybe it's creating scenarios or characters that you can interact with what are the journeys that we could take people on through arvr as a as a medium that helps them connect to something in some way maybe it's going going on a wonderful adventure that is you know created by a generative ai that is cued by you uh, like you know a really advanced form of playing dungeons and dragons or something uh, maybe it's a character that you can interact with that can help guide you on a personalized experience to uh, of, of sort of therapy and healing of some aspect uh, maybe there's there's a way to combine AI tools generative AI with therapy and mental health perhaps that's something I, that could be very interesting maybe there are other other ways of exploring healthcare based applications here really that's it's a it's a very hard question to predict. Right now, to look ten years out, given how fast uh, this this field is going, but at the very least, the ability to open up the canvas for what you can do on these devices is is going to be tremendous. Uh, I think that's that's something where if I if I knew if I knew a solid answer here, uh, it would be worth it would be worth a lot of money. Uh, for <laughs> what's what's the most valuable thing that people will use 10 years from now on this. Uh, and that's that's something I know a lot of people are trying to figure out, but it's uh, it's really exciting at the moment.
1: Yeah, totally. And I know like there are some companies already like working on the intersection of like AR and AR, VR and mental health. And they're actually working really well because it's it opens up like a whole new market for these products for like healing and versatility of AR makes the simulated environment a lot more useful than real world environments sometimes. For example, if someone has the fear of heights, you can't actually put someone on top of a building, but you can't do that in the simulated environment, which is really exciting. Um, And then going off the topic of like AI, a huge concern on the minds of a lot of people, I'm sure, um, is like the ethical aspect of AI. So how do you think artificial intelligence can be integrated in a positive way in the workspace so that humans and AI can work together?
0: I think there's, you know, I've been I've been working kind of in AI for 13, 14, 15, maybe something like that. Uh, and and I've seen a lot of I've seen a few kind of waves of of hype and, and excitement over things. I'm not too phased about are, are we going to hit general AI? And is this going to transform humanity? I'm not really that interested in, in, that, in that question. Uh, AI is a tool. Uh, we keep making more and more sophisticated tools. Uh, when I was in high school, I didn't have autocorrect on a phone wasn't a thing. You know, If you took someone from 15 years prior, they'd probably think autocorrect seems like an AI. Uh, and now it's something that's an indispensable tool of our daily lives. Same with calculators. Same with programming these days. Your your editor will suggest all kinds of decomplicated autocomplete for what you're doing that didn't exist in the past. Going forward, maybe you know the next round of AI is you're you're opening a word document and you can you know describe a quick sentence saying what you're hoping to achieve, and it builds a framework for you to to start from, uh, and then we keep advancing from that. So. I think the, the most important thing in terms of integrating AI in, in our daily lives and whatever the the next few rounds of tools are is making sure that we can trust it reliably, kind of like with autonomous vehicles as well. If If we don't trust the thing that we're using, that's when we're going to have problems with it. Things that really scare me about AI are the number of people who will trust what you know uh one of these these online generative ai large language models will say just verbatim without without verifying it uh the amount of misinformation that can be spread not through any malice but through not not because the the, the chatbot is trying to lead humanity astray but just because we understand so little about them that we trust them directly that's what scares me Uh, Because then you're going to have, you know, huge swaths of people who will get their answers from some chatbot that 80% of the time is saying something completely inaccurate. That is a cultural issue with the way that we're messaging stuff about AI. There are a variety of of possible ethical concerns for sure uh, that can come from people trying to misuse these. (laughs) Uh, that's something where it's, it's again, kind of thinking to the autonomous vehicle case. There's a big part of we culturally becoming comfortable with how to use and interact with these tools, um, the same way you know people on the streets of some cities are figuring out how to get used to, there's an autonomous vehicle with no driver on the road next to me, what do I do? Um, and there's a big aspect that is the regulation of what's happening. Uh, and and what role any government might be able to play in this? In some cases, there's there's a lot of situations where something about the legal system has to catch up so that we can help protect people that may be let astray. How do we do that? That I unfortunately don't have a great answer for. But the the area that I would push on, and I feel engineering and and folks in engineering are best suited to push on is how do we design these systems in a way where we can verify and guarantee correctness of what they're doing and providing. Uh, If our large language models, we we can actually be confident that anything that they spit out is correct with high confidence, that helps make this problem a lot easier.
2: So I love a lot of what you said, but I just want to go back to this Sort of piece of cultural acceptance with AI. From your perspective, why do you think it's so hard for us as humans in pretty much every society to embrace all these new innovations that are coming forth?
0: I'm I'm actually not sure that I'm seeing it be hard. I'm seeing it as being too easy. Uh, at least that's that's been my perception that people are extremely trusting and and excited about using these AI systems like large language models to make their lives easier and simpler. The amount of, of press coverage that you saw in the last you know year or two of people who got a large language model to do their homework for them or to you know fill it, do 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 their professional work for them uh, to save time is, is mind boggling to me. That's the part that I don't know if I don't I don't know if it's quite a cultural aspect or an educational aspect of, you know, hey there's a There's a calculator online. Everyone's gonna go trust the calculator. It's the same thing here. There's a a, a chat bot that will do your homework for you. Great, everyone's gonna trust the chat bot to do your homework for you. Uh, Convincing people that maybe we should be more careful about integrating these into our daily lives, I think is the challenge that I'm seeing now. It's a big, exciting change. And usually with, with each wave of these, Lots of people get really excited and flock to it, uh, and and what's hard what's hard to say is is it too soon for people to get so excited about some of these? Has it been too overhyped? Um, that's something actually that we've seen in AR VR a few times. Uh, a lot of technology industries have this concept of a of a winter that happens, and uh, virtual reality has had several winters over the last decade or so, where. There's a whole ton of hype and excitement because of a new prototype or a new product. Everyone thinks it's gonna transform everything. Then the reality hits, people realize, hey, this this is kind of okay. And then interest totally drops out, investment drops out, you end up in a winter. AI has had a bunch of winters as well over the, the last many decades. And you know, I think that's, that's uh, what will be interesting in the next year or two is, is all of this hype gonna turn into value? Or are people going to realize, hey, this thing, these things are wrong one too many times. It's made lots of mistakes and cost me a lot. And I'm going to start losing interest and, and uh, uh, pull back investment. That We've seen it happen a lot of times before. It'll be interesting to see if it happens now.
1: Yeah, that's some really interesting food for thought. Um, now, I want to switch gears a little. Um, <laughs> so what do you think are like some crucial skills and mindsets for working at a highly positioned job in the tech space.
0: Curiosity and, and determination are often the the big the most critical mindsets that that I see. Tech and engineering is hard. There's there's no there's no way around that. You kind of do need to enjoy challenges and and enjoy the Russian euphoria you get from being able to solve them and tackle them. And that's that's something that most people are not born with, but it's something that you can work towards and and train. Uh, kind of a, a we talked we talked about how many times you run into failure, <laughs> uh, both kind of career wise and on any, an individual engineering problem. Training resilience to that is really important, uh, and you know throughout my education, I, I remember. Hearing stories of people who had never, who sailed through everything. Everything was really easy. They never failed at anything in school in their lives. And then they started in the workforce, ran into one problem and just fell apart because they had never understood their limits. Uh, And uh, on my first day of undergrad, uh, my, my first professor in my first calculus class looked at us all in the class and said, uh, this is in, in first year engineering. Most of you around this room, you know, probably were, were top, of your, top of your class in high school. You did really great. You think you're amazing. Most of you have never really been tested. You've never really been pushed. You've never understood what your limits are. If you look around, many of you are not gonna make it through this program, just statistically, but those of you that, that do will be pushed to your limits and you'll now know where they are and know how to manage being at their limits something along those lines and that's really stuck with me and everyone that I went to school with because yeah part of becoming a good engineer is understanding what are the limits of your capabilities what are the limits of of how much you can work and how much stress you can handle being comfortable with working within those and then learning how to push those further and further out kind of that as a skill set Being able to manage your limits is critical for pretty much everything, not just engineering and and the tech space. In terms of kind of more practical skills, being able to learn really quickly. Uh, We talked about how quickly the whole tech space is moving. Often with with people who are fresh out of their PhDs right now, I feel like a bit of a dinosaur (laughs) and I'm I'm barely out of school Uh, just because the space has moved forward so quickly that when I was studying machine learning in you know 2012-ish, uh, everything that was going on in this space at that time is completely different than what's going on now. Totally different tools, totally different languages uh, for, for describing models and systems, completely different space. Uh, So even over 10 years, everything that I learned then is basically irrelevant. And so the ability to learn really quickly, uh, and then to be able to communicate that learning to people around you uh, are some of the most the most critical skills that I see uh, people needing, especially as they go from a starting junior engineer to someone who's leading teams, those those aspects of quickly understanding a new space, being able to communicate it, and understanding it well enough to make judgments about trade-offs. So back to to everything about constraints and requirements, the only way that you work through those problems is by reasoning through trade-offs. And the only way to do that when you're thrust into totally new engineering situations is you first have to learn about that space and learn really quickly uh, enough to be able to make those judgment calls in in a defensible way that you can convince your peers about. Uh, so those are those are usually some of the tops the tops kind of skills and mindsets that I look for in, in team members and, and uh, people that I try and work with and that I, I try and foster in myself as well.
2: Definitely, some very crucial things to keep in mind for anybody who's listening. No matter what career path you take, you're likely gonna exercise at least a few of these mindsets without knowing it. So, when it comes to identifying your limits, uh, how do you think you can get to the point where you know what your limits are?
0: The the unfortunate thing is that at, le- at least in my experience, you don't know until you've hit them. And you know, some some people and I uh, have have a, a negative trait, and I'm one of them of continually taking on more things, taking on more projects, saying yes to too many things, and that's one path towards uh, finding your limits is you keep thinking, yeah, I can do all this stuff. I'm, I'm I'm great. I have so many hours in the day. I can get through, you know, all of these different work threads that I'm managing. And then, you know, it's four in the morning and you realize none of them are done. And, you know, half of them are due the next day and okay, well, I I hit my limit. Uh, And you end up with, with a failure that you get to learn from. Uh, At other times it's, taking on something that is much harder than you can handle at the moment that doesn't necessarily mean you never have the capability but it's something that at that moment in time you have not trained yourself enough to be able to do and you can't just kind of wing your way through it with i I mentioned I, i had wanted to work in aerospace and i got to the math for fluid mechanics and it was just too much for me at the time. It's you know, I I just hadn't trained myself well enough in in math and practiced enough to be able to do it at the time and and at that point I hit my limit and I needed to to recalibrate what I was doing. And so the the only way that you figure out your limits is by challenging yourself and continuing to challenge yourself until you you hit a wall. And I'm I'm sure there's some people who are able to understand their limits by coming close to them and never really failing. Uh, but almost everyone that I know has hit some wall where they've, they've kind of collapsed or uh, uh, been totally unable to do something and needed to, to rethink their approach uh, or, or for some reason needed to you know, back off for a while because it, they had just taken on too much. Uh, and most of the time, it's thrilling to take on more stuff and succeed at challenges and achieve a lot of things. I, I love it. Lots of people do. There's, there's that, that balance though of at some point you might hit too much and then you learn something about yourself and that helps you do better the next time.
1: For sure. The limit definitely varies from person to person as well. And sometimes it's just necessary to simply try in order to figure out what your limit is and I guess pivot whenever needed. Um, now, for our listeners who might want to follow your path, what's an exciting part of your job that you look at sometimes and just think, "Wow, I can't believe that they're paying me to do this. This is so cool."
0: Getting to just work with really smart people and learn from them. Like that that's one one thing that I've tried to guide a lot of my career decisions around is look for the smartest people in the room and go go sit with them, learn from them, and try and, you know, be as much like them as you can. And that I get to be at a company full of crazy smart people, uh, and I can just go and find awesome people to work with all the time and have amazing conversations about any technical subject under the sun uh is is just a blast and one of the things particular about google that i love and is wow this is so cool it has an extremely open culture inside extremely collaborative culture meaning that i throughout my career have worked with people all across this gigantic company working in all aspects of uh, of the business that that uh, google covers so i've got to, been able to work on Really interesting robotics projects in various parts of the company. Been able to work on interesting AI projects that are at the cutting edge. I've been able to interact with some of the top researchers and engineers in the area, and this is all just part of part of the day job. Of I have this huge uh, pool of talent that I can work with and explore, and this hu- huge pool of ideas that I can explore. Uh, and there are definitely days where yeah, I can't believe that they're paying me to to be able to work on this crazy cool thing uh, where it's, you know, I just met someone at the other side of the company and ended up working on a, a side project that, that was, you know, a crazy cool flying robot or something.
2: All right. So we're working with all these amazing people. We're learning all these cool things. Do we have a favorite project by any chance?
0: Uh, we do. We do. Um, of the things that are publicly available, my favorite project is something called the ARCore Depth API. What this is, is uh, a new capability that we added to this augmented reality developer kit for Android smartphones uh, that lets you do something really amazing with really limited hardware on the phone. Some phones have a thing called a LiDAR. On the back—it's a depth sensor that shoots out laser beams. They bounce back. It measures how long they took uh, in order to, to build a 3D reconstruction of the scene around you. Most Android phones don't have those. Uh, Android phones cover a huge range of of cost profiles depending on the manufacturer and the target market. Uh, and one thing that we do with AR Core is design things with kind of this broad accessibility and reach in mind. So we needed to come up with a way for people who don't have a super premium high-end phone to be able to have more rich and interesting AR experiences on their phone where you need to understand detailed 3D geometry of the scene. And so we did a whole ton of R&D on some new algorithms to be able to do this with just a single camera that's that's moving in in space as you move your phone around. Uh, And I love this project because one it's this like really cool broad reach story about how we're enabling lots of people to do something uh very cheaply that's you know kind of magical on your phone uh without without needing to to buy something really fancy so it's it's really accessible and it was one of my first big chances to lead a a big crazy talented team at google uh and the that was one of that's been one of my the highlight experiences of my career is being able to work with that group of people to do this this amazing thing that at the time we uh uh, we felt was really revolutionary for the smartphone ar space
1: yeah that sounds so cool and like the feeling of bring joy and making an impact in other people's lives is definitely very satisfying and very rewarding as well um, now we're gonna move to our last question because I do want to respect your time. Three takeaways you want our listeners to walk away with from this conversation.
0: so for for folks in in high school who may be thinking about engineering and uh, going towards technology, run towards challenges. Challenging yourself is something that you should never be worried about or feel or feel bad about especially, or in an academic environment, that's what the environment's there for. It's there to give you opportunities to challenge and push yourself so that you can learn and grow. I don't know what high school is like these days. I remember spending most of my time, grade one to 12, kind of getting bullied for being a nerd and caring about school. And I succeeded in ignoring that. <laughs> and it, 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 has, it has paid off and was the right choice for me. Uh, but that trying hard in school and trying to achieve is an amazing thing. And that's why you're in that experience is something that I I think can't, can't be said enough. Seek out challenges, push yourself, try and learn as much as you can. And, and not only whatever's in the curriculum, think about what's the thing that you're really interested in. That's the spark that has to guide you. And that's, that's one of the the other big takeaways is find it, find the thing, that you're so passionate and interested about interested in that you're you're gonna do it no matter what anyone says. You're just gonna follow that thing wherever it leads you because you're so interested in it. Uh, that's the freedom that you have to do that as a student doesn't get replicated again or or it's it becomes a very, very a much more challenging thing to do later on when you have a professional life, when you have a family. So find that and chase it. For me, that was robots can see and move around. That's really cool. Uh, I'm just gonna learn everything that I can about how to make them do this. And that will motivate you and drive you. Motivation isn't everything. Discipline is also something that you have to to build. Uh, you need You need at least one of them. Motivation often can run out. Discipline lasts lasts longer. Uh, and so, an, another one is, you know, you your 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 brain is an instrument that you're going to rely on for hopefully the rest of your life. It needs training. It needs work to have it do do what you need. Uh, and that, you know, you're you're now in the phase where you can train and exercise that instrument, make it sharper more capable give it more and more tools and then you go and start leveraging those tools so invest in invest in that and and make sure you keep growing that and that goes back to building resilience building the tool sets being able to learn quickly those are things that are going to be useful forever Uh, and i think i've run out of three but you know the, the the fourth one if you'll allow is is probably also embrace failure whatever plan you're probably going to make it's probably not going to work out that way and that's okay in in most people i know in almost every aspect of their lives whatever plan that they had set out for themselves in high school their lives are radically different uh almost always for the better uh and by being by being able to adapt to change quickly and make the best out of each situation that you end up in. Uh, luck will take you in, in very interesting places. And I know for me, there were lots of cases of luck where if I had succeeded at the thing that I had planned to do, in hindsight, it probably would, would have worked out pretty badly. But some other opportunity that just really clicked with me and and followed my my passions and interests turned out wildly better than I could have hoped. So. embrace embrace and adapt with failure
1: yeah for sure that's a great way to end off life is probably not going to be a linear path but as long as you have the perseverance the motivation and the discipline it'll take you where you want to be thank you so much for coming on our podcast today we really enjoyed talking with you
0: thank you it was a great uh, great to be here